Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast for Sunday, October 17th, 2021. Today's sermon passage is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 to 14, part 3. If you'd like to follow along, please go to gracebaptistchurchnc.org, click the sermons link at the top, and click today's manuscript. Welcome to Grace Baptist Church. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 8 to 14, and then I'll pray and then we'll begin. And the title of the sermon is, Jesus is Superior to the Angels, and this is the third sermon in this, so this is really part three, but let's, let's read Hebrews 1, 8 to 14. But of the Son, He says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you very humbly at this time. We're very grateful for these words. They are for us. We... Father, we change, and we do not stand in the way that your word stands, in the way you stand. And so we come and we read the eternal word and the word of God that we have for for us. We are so very grateful for these words. Help us this morning to understand them as we teach them, as we preach them. Father, we believe in the power of the preached word. I pray that Jesus would increase, that I, that we, would decrease. Pray that in spite of me, that you would work greatly. Help us this morning, Father, we give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm not sure that there's any chapter in the Bible, or in the New Testament particularly, that establishes the person and the work of Christ more than Hebrews chapter 1 after going through it. And we're going to finish chapter 1 today. Think about it. Through the Son, the world was created. We see that in verses earlier on in the chapter and later on in the chapter. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature. The Son upholds the universe by the word of His power. And concerning the great work of redemption... We read in verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then, as we, we've considered all of those things and a lot more in the previous weeks, as the author continues here, for the remainder of chapter 1, he compares the Son with the angels, showing that they are superior in every way to the angels. I, if just thinking about comparing things. Just think about comparing two ducks. An ugly duckling with a beautiful duck. To us, we would, we would look at that ugly duckling and go, man, that's not the most beautiful duck. And boy, look at this duck over here compared to this other beautiful duckling. And we'd say, what a beautiful duck. But, and we, we could even say this one is superior to the, the other duck. But at the end of the day, both of those ducks are still floating on the water. Still, rains are coming down. It's coming off their back with their oil. They're still 
eating pond weeds and seeds and insects. We could compare those two together, but they're still ducks. And I just like to pick on people, and I see the Henleys just pulled in here with little ones. And I could compare my muscles with Caleb Henley's, okay, and everybody's thinking, Caleb's muscles are much superior to mine. That is true, but you know what? At the end of the day, Caleb and I both put our pants on the same way, and we are both men. We are both creatures. But when it comes to the Son of God, and particularly in His essence as God, but even in His humanity, there is no real comparison that we can make as far as someone being equal to the Son. And so, as we think about this, and the writer of Hebrews making this comparison here in chapter 1, what may make this comparison necessary is the fact that Jesus, if you'll look over, turn over a chapter, a page there, to chapter 2, verse 7, says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. So this is in reference to His incarnation. Jesus taking on flesh. As John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, as we've spoken before and as we've seen, Jesus is not only man, He is also fully God. His deity and His humanity are united in one person. And to me, that is much greater mystery than the Trinity. Think about one person, but yet 100% God, 100% man. That is, to me, the greatest mystery I can, I can think of or imagine. And so, as we look back, though, about comparing Jesus to the angels, first two sermons, this is part three, first two sermons were this. The first one was... We, Jesus is superior to the angels because of his unique relationship with the Father. We've, we've looked at that. Second sermon, Jesus is superior to the angels because of his infinite worth, his value. Today, we will consider one more reason as we finish up chapter 1. Jesus is superior to the angels because the, of the nature of his reign. The nature of his being a king who is reigning and what is different about his reign, his nature as his reign. I have three truths to, to point this out from the text. I'll go ahead and give them to you. First truth, his reign is eternal. Second truth, his reign is immutable. Or basically that's a big word for unchangeable. So his, his reign is eternal, one. Two, his reign is unchangeable or immutable. And then finally, last truth today, his reign is righteous. Righteous. So eternal, immutable, righteous. So let's begin. Jesus is superior to the angels because his reign is eternal. Now, it is true that from one perspective, the reign of Christ at the majesty of the right hand on high began at his ascension. After he came and did his work here as mediator, it is certainly true. And I think the author is pointing that out very clearly. In fact, that's the context. And this began only, or this reign began only after he took on flesh. He died on the cross. He rose again. He appeared there with his disciples. And then he was taken up into heaven, his ascension back to the right hand of God. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews is based upon this fact. Now that Christ has ascended, all of these things, shadows and types and things of the old covenant, they've been fulfilled in Christ. They have gone away. But in Christ, he is seated at the right hand of God. That is very clear. And I've seen that, I think we've seen that very clearly in the last sermons. But, there is more to this truth. Look with me at verse 8. <clears throat> you might ask the question, why is there more to this truth? Because I think 
again, we've talked about this before. We see his humanity and we see his deity. Verse 8, the author says, your what? Throne. O God is forever and ever. He is speaking about the Son. What the Son of Man did on earth happened in time. But from eternity, the throne of the Son of God has always existed. These words that we see here are reserved for God alone. Because who else would we say sits upon a throne, the throne of heaven, but God alone? Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 45. I love preaching Hebrews because Hebrews is like preaching the Old Testament. So turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 45 as we consider the context. Because what the author is doing is just basically quoting the Old Testament to prove his point. Psalm 45. This psalm was written by the sons of Korah, and they are addressing the king. In that context, the king of Israel. And then further, the king who is God. But verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. In that context, it is the king of Israel. Also, this psalm is seen by Jewish scholars as one that looks forward to the Messiah. And so now, the writer of the Hebrews, he has taken this verse, or this psalm, and he is showing that it's fulfilled or its ultimate fulfillment is in the Son of God. Look at verses 2 and 3 of that psalm. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Verse 3, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Look down at verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. And we'll come back to that at point three. But look down at verses 16 and 17 of that psalm. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, the kings of Israel, if we think about those kings, David, just think of a few good kings, David, Solomon, Uzziah, Josiah, and others we might name, but what do they all have, all have in common? What did they have in common as far as their throne and their kingdom and their reign? Where are they today? They've all passed. And their kingdoms and their reigns came to an end. But yet we see in this psalm the words, I will bless you forever and ever and forever and ever. That's always interesting to me to see how the, at least the Jewish men and women who are reading these verses, what they would think about this. Because these kings are dead and gone, but, dead and gone, but there's always this forever aspect of, of prophecy in the Old Testament is because they are not fulfilled unless they go to, to the Messiah. And even, even the, the, the many, many Jewish people look to this psalm as pointing to the Messiah, but they don't take it far enough. And the author of Hebrews does, shows that only of the Son can these words be fulfilled. His throne is eternal because He is eternal. The angels, as He's comparing, they are not so. Now, the angels are great, they are majestic, they have great splendor, their responsibilities are immense, and they are glorious. But, look at verse 7 of Hebrews 1. Some, go back there to Hebrews 1. Verse 7. He makes His angels winds, and His ministers a flame of fire. They are creatures. They are ministers. Look at verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They are bound by space and time to do the bidding of God as servants, 
as creatures, but of the Son. His is the throne. We don't, we don't see the angels as having thrones. Not of them are these things said, but of the Son, His is the throne. Their nature, they are, again, creatures, winds and flames, but He is the one who gives command to the angels. They are not eternal, but the Son is eternal. Look at chapter 1, Hebrews there, verse 12. But you are the same. And then what does it say? And your years will have no end. I think of a few verses from the Old Testament. Isaiah 9, verse 7. We read this around Christmas time. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. Daniel 7 Speaking of the Ancient of Days, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. And he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. Even when we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 22, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The Son is superior to the angels because He is eternal. That's truth number one. Truth number two. The Son is superior to the angels because His his reign is immutable. That means His reign is unchangeable. This truth merely follows eternality or eternity. If the nature of His reign is eternal, then the nature of His reign is also unchanging. In Hebrews 1, the author is comparing the fact, this is very important, he's comparing the fact that the angels, the creation, and men... And all of these things in the Old Testament, they're all subject to change. But it is not so with the Son. Look at verses 10 and 12, or 10 through 12. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. That's speaking of the Son. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Verse 11. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have have no end. Again, the author is quoting from the Old Testament. If you would, look with me to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. Here the context, we see a man who is greatly troubled. His heart is faint. And really what he's doing is he's praying to God and he's pouring his heart out to God, which is, we, we, can, we can identify with that. When times are difficult and things are going on, as in all of our lives, to varying degrees, one day up, one day down, one day very difficult, one day very, very easy, but we're all in the same boat there. And so we know what it's like. And this, the psalmist here is just pouring out his heart before God. And look at verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Verse 2. Do not hide your, your, your face from me in the day of my distress. Verse 3, for my days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. Verse 11 in the same psalm, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. 
Here we see this, this person, this man who knows great affliction, and he looks at his life, and he knows that his days are numbered. Such should we all, as we consider everything that's going on in our lives, we should know that our days are numbered and <laughs> could be very near to its end at any moment. We do not know that. Circumstances one day are not the same as the next. And this, the psalmist feels this truth. It's so bad that he says in verse 23, speaking of God, He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. And then in verse 24, Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. And let me just say, by a little parenthesis there, those are the thoughts and the prayers and the words of the Lord Jesus in the day in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he was how old? 33 years old. Oh God, take me not away in the midst of my days as he was taken as a young man. That's for another, another sermon. But the psalmist here is contemplating that he is the one who changes, but God does not change. He will wither away. He will die. Everything about him will change and pass away briefly. But God, you are eternal and you are unchanging. In verse 12, he says, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. And then look down at verses 25 to 27. Still in Psalm 102. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So, fast forward now to the New Testament. Here, the author is showing the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm found in the Son. He is saying, creation will change. The angels will change, we will change, but the nature of Christ's reign is unchanging. It's as if James is saying about the same thing about the Lord Jesus Christ as he says about God. There is no variation or shadow due to change. So let's just for a moment think about this and try to make, apply this a little bit to our lives. Let's think about our world that we live in. I'm almost finished with a book by Winston Churchill called The History of the English-Speaking Peoples. And I am absolutely amazed at the changes over the past 2,000 years just with the island of, we would call today, Great Greater Britain with Wales and, and Scotland and Ireland and England, that island. The history I'm reading, I'm, it's just like every 20 years or every generation, there's a new king, there's a new change, something is going on. Languages, um, there's variants that change. And when we think about the world that we live in, languages come and go and they change. Governments, systems of government change. They come and they go. Those who are in charge come and go. Levels of wealth in society shift and change and come. And one generation is rich, another generation is poor. Due to all kinds of external circumstances, whether they be wars or pestilences or any kind of sickness, whatever is going on, society, cultures, History is changing, and our world is changing. Think about some, some other things. Enemies become friends all of a sudden. You think about the long-standing wars between England and France. Sometimes they're best buds. Sometimes they are the worst of enemies. And we could talk about all of the nations in that way. <laughs> and the same kinds of things are happening all over the world with every people and tribe and nation and tongue. Let's think about the changes, not just with the world, but in your own life. And so, 
Children, look up here with me. If you're smaller and you're not paying attention right now, this is your moment to pay attention. Every year, children, as you grow, think about all the changes that are going on in your life. You are taller every year, so you're changing. Maybe your family moves houses and you get a new room. That changes. Maybe you get new furniture and you're all excited about your new furniture because the old has passed away and they have something nicer to sit on or whatever. Sometimes, I don't know, in some families, rearranging the furniture is more frequent than in others. I, we haven't done that in a while, but when Kristen comes home and says, John, I've been thinking. It's got to be a rearrangement of some room, some furniture, somewhere, some change coming to our house. We get new friends. So you go to this school or that school and you get older, you get new friends. Your hairstyle changes, although mine has not changed since I was 20. I'll just tell you that. It is still the same, still yet to comb my hair since I was 20. Hairstyles change, and I think some of us are thinking, man... What used to be has gone, and now that hairstyle is back again, and it's coming back. The same with clothing, whatever. There are changes. Mom and Daddy are getting older. Changes happening. You move to a new school. Changes. Change, change, change. Also, let's think about just the change in our lives due to tragedies. The death of a loved one. Or a major sickness. I've told this story before. My grandmother was hit by a car when she was 55 years old. And she laid in the hospital for three months. Well, she eventually learned to walk again, but very slowly. Never went downstairs again. My grandpa would always say, he would smile and have this big laugh. And he'd say, for better or for worse. I didn't know it was going to get this worse. But he loved her. But she changed greatly. And that accident Think about the different, I mean, we can go on and on about what happened in their marriage forever because of that sickness that he did not ask for, and neither did she. We could go on and on because of things like that. I can't even imagine our sister Diana now as the Lord has taken our brother Lee. The changes that will take place in her life. And... This is going on all the time. All the time. Think about also, maybe just go think about what, put one more thing into perspective. Think about the universe. The universe is constantly, I mean, we can't even imagine how big it is, but it's always changing, constantly moving stars and planets and meteors and galaxies and solar systems. I read an article yesterday I showed Greg. The, the, the two solar systems they found that they think are getting ready to actually collide. Of course, this won't happen for about a billion years. But in about a billion years, those two systems will collide. But they are moving. We are moving. Our earth is rotating. We're moving around the sun, the solar system. And then our solar system is, is around our sun. And then ours is going around the galaxy. In a way. It just goes on and on and on every thing is constantly changing and you know what we do not know what the changes will be tomorrow in our own lives much less in the greater world around us our thrones are always changing because our nature and everything that i just mentioned our nature is one of change but look down here at hebrews 1 verse 8 but of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of Your hands. They will perish, but You remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like, like our clothing that we wash too many times in that old washing machine. After some time, we just throw it out and we roll it up. Not so with the Son. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So everything that I just mentioned, there is only one constant. 
And that is, in this context here, it is the Son of God. He is at the center of all of these things. You, Lord, laid the foundations. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. This means that only in Christ do we have a sure foundation. He is the anchor for our souls. Today, He is the anchor and the foundation of your soul. For those who trust in Him, though the winds and the rains and the storms of life and all the things I mentioned change and beat around us and bring us down, our rock, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, He will stand. The angels, are they will not stand. Creation will not stand. We will not stand, but He will stand. He does not change. This means we cannot put our hopes or our trust in the things of this world. We cannot do it. Today, when great change is happening in our culture, can't, I can't imagine how quickly we're having such a moral revolution in our culture. Even thinking about what Greg taught this morning in Sunday school. It is absolutely... It is Romans 1. And it is the judgment of God. And we know that our only hope, though, is Christ. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Psalm 2. Kings of the earth, they set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. But He who sits in the heavens laughs. And He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give another application, or just a more specific application, concerning our world. It is good for us to take care of this world. For God has given us the mandate, even as Greg pointed out this morning, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, where he says to Adam and Eve, go, have children, multiply, have dominion over the earth, take care of it, spread my glory. God has given us that mandate, and so therefore, we should take care of this earth. However, we must keep in mind that this earth still is changing, and it is temporary. No matter what we do, this world will still change. And one day, there will be a new earth, a new heaven, and a new earth. But you know what? When we think about the sinful world around us, when we go out and we engage people, and we talk to them about climate change or about, you know, Greenpeace or taking care of the world. We, we very much agree in many ways that we've got to do everything we can to take care of this world. But we're coming at this problem from two different angles, two different perspectives. The sinful world does not know this truth that I'm sharing right now. They think that this world is all there is. So therefore, we should be more sympathetic when we talk to people because this is all there is in their minds. Toward those, towards those who put so much effort in preserving this world. Again, it's all they have. It is our job for sure to take care of it, but who is the one who preserves it? The world says that's our responsibility, but no, God is the one that preserves this world <laughs> for now. At the, t at the same time, how should we live our lives today? I'm just going to read 2 Peter 3. Uh, looks like, read starting in verse 8. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. How should, I'm answering the question, how should we live today? But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient towards us. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up 
and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, in other words, since all these things are happening, Peter asks the question, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's our application. Finally this morning, just with that word righteousness, we've seen that His reign, He's superior to angels because His reign is eternal. His reign is unchangeable. And finally this morning, last truth, His reign is righteous. And this may be the, the fullest one here that, that I will not expound greatly in the text because we've already done some of this. But look at verses 8 and 9. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here we see that Christ is carrying a scepter. What is a scepter? It's, it's a staff. As Moses, you've seen the Ten Commandments on TV, carries his staff. And he rules with the staff. And so someone seen holding this staff as one who rules or, and, and also reigns. But it says here that we see Christ carrying a staff. What kind of staff? A staff of righteousness. This pictures what kind of reign that Christ has. I think back to the patriarch in the Old Testament of Jacob, also called Israel. He's the one who had the 12 sons. And right before he died, he brought the 12 sons, the 12, which are now the 12 tribes of Israel, brought them together, and he prophesies over each one of them. Do you remember what he said about Judah? Going back to Genesis, um, I don't remember exactly, Genesis 49. Here's what he says to Judah when he brings the boy or the man older man, Judah, up to him. And he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jacob is prophesying about Judah that someone will come and he will reign. He is looking forward to the Messiah that would come through the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so let me ask, how does this king rule? He rules in righteousness. It is who he is. Because he is God in the flesh, in his essence. And because of who he is, it's in his heart. Look at verse 9, one, chapter 1, verse 9 here. You have loved righteousness. So not only is he righteous in who he is, he also then loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Now, there's so much I could say here, but I want to end with why this is so important to us. Do you remember back in the... If someone were to say to you, what, what do you think is the most important chapter in the book of Isaiah? I'm just curious. What would you think? I would say... Probably Isaiah's calling in Isaiah chapter 6. If you would, turn with me to Isaiah 6. Just going to look at a couple of our, a few verses here. But let me ask the question again while you're turning there. Why is it so important to us that He reigns in righteousness? Well, Isaiah, when he had a vision, and he was taken where in Isaiah 6? To the throne room of God. And, it, and here we are in Hebrews 1, and he says, Your throne, O God, is forever, speaking of the Son. So we go back to Isaiah, and we see Isaiah in the throne room of God, in his vision. 
In Isaiah 6, chapter 1, I mean chapter 6, verse 1, 1 to 5. Let me read those verses. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. By the way, seraphim, some kind of angel, right? They, they have their purpose there, even in the throne room of God. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And here's what they called one to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Foundations and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And, at the, and the house was filled with smoke. And so here Isaiah sees the holiness of God. And he doesn't say, very holy, very holy, very holy. He says, holy, holy, holy. Because you cannot, you cannot add to such. He is holy. And then when he sees the holiness of God, what does he do? He says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Today, there's nothing that we need more than to see the holiness of God and to see the King. Because when we do, we do the exact same thing. We see our own sin. And I see my own sin. And I see my laziness. And I see my failures in many ways as a father and as a husband. And I see my failures even as a, as a pastor and things I would want to do. And I see the, this, the, the impatience in my heart and the lack of love and the lack of faith. On and on I could go. And when I see the holiness and I think of the holiness of God and I read this passage in Hebrews 1 and we get here and he says, Your throne, O God, is forever. I see my holiness. And that is what we need to see. But when we think about Isaiah, when we come to the New Testament, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the Apostle John speaks about that moment when he had that vision in the throne room. Do you remember what he said? He said, Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory of Christ. And he spoke of Him. And so, John is saying that what, who Isaiah saw back in that vision was the glory of Christ. Brothers and sisters, there is only one King whose reign is righteous. And that is completely righteous. Even the best of kings in this world are sinners. Only one is not a sinner. This is the eternal, unchangeable King of glory, the Son of God, whose throne is forever and ever. This is the Lord Jesus. Now, in our context in Hebrews 1, the good angels, of course, those who have not fallen, they have not sinned. But only the Lord Jesus is holy, holy, holy. And this truth is so important as we consider the gospel. Here we are in the New Testament. We are gospel-centered people. And it's a buzzword, the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? This truth is so important. Why is this? Well, I think of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. This is speaking about the Lord Jesus. For our sake, for our sake, our, we are sinners. But for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. No king could be righteous enough to lay down his life, a sacrifice 
and say, my sacrifice will be good enough to cover your sins. No person, I don't care what prophet, I don't care what king, I don't care what seer, whoever, no one is like the Lord Jesus in this regard. He is righteous. Isaiah 53, verses 9 to 11. You don't need to turn there. Here's what, it, here's what Isaiah says. Speaking about this righteous king, this righteous servant in that context. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. We are his offspring. The Lord Jesus laid down his life, the one who did not sin, as a sacrifice. Those animals, they didn't sin either, but their nature is changing. They are creatures. That is why the great mystery, the incarnation of Christ, God taking on flesh, and then laying down His life only, Christ is righteous in this way. Let me continue reading here. He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. <laughs> Out of the anguish of His soul... He shall, he shall see, his soul shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. This is none other than the person and the work of Christ on the cross in the great work of justification. If you are in Christ today, God says, as the great judge, I've judged my son. Therefore, there is now no condemnation because I have judged him, and I have not judged you. If you are not a Christian today, if you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then your sins are still upon your own back. Your guilt is still there. But those who come to Christ, He takes our guilt. He takes our sin upon Himself. Upon himself. This is the good news of the Gospel. And because of His righteousness, He is the only one who could accomplish the plan of God to redeem a sinful world and make all things new. It is His righteousness, particularly His sinlessness, that makes the cross acceptable. Philippians 2, verse 6, Though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, He humbled Himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And after he died, what did he do? He rose again, and then he ascended to his rightful place, back to heaven from where he came, where he reigns as king. This is the point of the author of Hebrews. I'm going to bring this to an end right now. This is the point. And this truth sets up the rest of the book. I've taken more time in chapter 1 purposely. We'll go a little quicker through the rest of the book, but we cannot overlook these truths that I, that I have preached in chapter 1 of Hebrews. We have, here's the, here's the point, we have such a high priest who sits in the heavens. And so if you are in Christ, if you have believed in Him, where do you sit? With Him in the heavens. Which king of this earth ever lets his subjects sit on the throne with Him? Now, He is the king. He is on the throne. We are but creatures. But the Bible says that we are, if you are a Christian today, you are united with Him. And how does this happen? I had more time today, go back. Therefore, God has, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Who does Jesus give to us? He gives us 
the Holy Spirit. And thinking what, what Greg was teaching this morning, talking about the LGBTQ plus movement and going through the Old Testament and the New Testament on what God has to say about sexual sin and lots of other sins. But at the end of the day, what gives us the great power to change? It is the giving and the gift of the Holy Spirit begun in regeneration. We are reunited with Him by the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit washes us changes us, and gives us new life. This is union with Christ. So let's think about our three truths. Christ is eternal. Christ is immutable. Christ is righteous. This means that if you are in Christ today, rejoice because you have eternal life. This also means that if you are in Christ, your position cannot change. If He cannot change, then and you are in Him, united to Him by the Spirit, then you cannot change. No one will snatch you from His hand. This also means that if you are a Christian today, if you are in Him, you are justified. You are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and your standing before God is eternally secure. So what is our response to these things today? One. We are creatures under His authority. We must remember that. That means He is Lord of all. It's not about us. It's about Him. Two, our response is worship. We sing, but we often think that that's all worship is. But worship is 24-7. All that we do. But in response to this, we worship. And finally, our response is obedience. Whatever He tells us to do, that is what we do. Because His command in the New Testament, as you go, make disciples. And then, of course, baptizing them and doing what? Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for these words this morning. You are good to us. They are for our nourishing, for our help, for our exhortation, for our conviction, for our growth in godliness, for our encouragement. May Christ be more beautiful to us. May we look unto Him this morning. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons at podbean.com. Search Grace Baptist Church. China Grove to find us. You can also find us on Apple Podcast. Search Grace Baptist Church, China Grove. You can also join us at the South Rowan YMCA, 950 Kimball Road, China Grove, North Carolina. We meet on Sunday mornings at 930 for fellowship and service starts at 10. Thank you for listening and remember to be intentional in making disciples this week.